In 2018, the drought in Cape Town, South Africa was so bad that nothing but muddy water came out of the city's faucets. The residents would go and uh, collect their daily supply of seven gallons of water every day, seven gallons of water per person per day. So the scientists at a nonprofit proposed a solution that worked with nature instead of against it. All they needed was a helicopter and an army of women with chainsaws. Those areas are very mountainous. They are very high. It's high areas. And here's the crazy thing. It worked. I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Season 1, Episode 10 How Women with Chainsaws Saved Cape Town. That would be Cape Town, South Africa, a rapidly growing city of 4.7 million people. The continent of Africa looks like a dog's head, nose down like it's drinking from a bowl. Well, it looks like that if you squint and you haven't had much sleep. There's even a lake where the eye should be, Lake Victoria. Anyway, Cape Town is on the southernmost tip of South Africa on the west side. It's basically the dog's mouth. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous city. I mean, it's parked right at the union of two oceans, and it's bordered by majestic mountains. From the air, it looks like a CGI city somebody made for a Lord of the Rings sequel or something. Anyway, like everywhere else on Earth, Cape Town has been feeling the effects of the climate crisis. The city's water comes from its mountains. In the winter, it rains, and the water runs down the slopes into six huge reservoirs. In 2014, the reservoirs were in great shape, 97% full. But that year's rainy season was a not very rainy season. The reservoirs fell to 71% full. Hmm, could this be anything to worry about? 2016, another dry rainy season. Now the reservoirs are 60%. Uh Uh-oh. 2017, 38% full. That got people's attention, especially when that summer was baking hot and brutally dry. The city logged six inches of rain over the entire year 2017. That's only two inches more rain than the Sahara Desert gets. The news wasn't good. 
Last year was one of the driest on record here in the midst of a three-year drought that officials say was impossible to predict. By the beginning of 2018, the reservoirs were below 20% full. The biggest one, the Tiavatarskluf Reservoir, usually supplies about half of the city's water. It was about 12% full. You can find pictures on Google. It looked like a huge, gross, sandy mud puddle with these naked branches sticking up from what had once been the underwater floor. And keep in mind that at about 10%, the reservoirs are basically worthless. The dregs of that water are too muddy to be useful. Cape Town was becoming the first major city in the world to run out of water. The countdown had begun to a scenario called Day Zero, when you'd turn on the faucet and nothing would come out. Says the city has entered a phase where it is anticipated the real possibility of day zero. Nobody could talk about anything else. The projection is that Cape Town will run out of water sometime early in April. That means you have to save water as if your life depends on it. This is Helen Zilla, premier of the Western Cape District in a 2018 news broadcast. There are fears of anarchy and chaos as people, of course, begin the scramble for water. Have you talked about how that will be managed? Yes, absolutely. There's a safety and security plan involving the Metro Police, involving the police, involving private security and the South African National Defence Force. If anyone understands Cape Town's water situation, it's Louise Stafford. She's the director of source water protection in South Africa for the Nature Conservancy. She'd spent decades studying and managing water use in Cape Town, but she'd never witnessed anything like this. Agriculture was really affected quite badly. Um, Many farmers lost their farms. um, And over 33,000 people lost their jobs on farms in the, the Western Cape or in this region. They have extended families. It's whole households that's being affected. So what, what did it feel like among the residents? There was elements of uh, people saying this is a conspiracy theory. Then you get uh, portions of the, the communities that felt really fearful um, with that reality. The majority of, of residents in Cape Town really was really concerned about it. As of February 1st, 2018, you weren't allowed to use more than 13 gallons of water per person per day. 13 gallons to cover everything. Drinking, cooking, showering, laundry, toilets, dishes, pets, everything. Get caught using more than that and you'd be slapped with fines up to $700. And if you had trouble even getting water, well, the government was happy to help out. The residents would go and collect their daily supply of seven gallons of water every day, seven gallons of water per person per day. There were about 200 pods, what they call pods, those temporary places. It's almost like little gas stations where we would have to queue every day to get our daily supply of water. Standing in those queues to fill up your water jug every day wasn't just inconvenient. It was a major disruption to your day. In addition you know, children need to get to school, people need to get to work, and now you have to queue for your daily supply of water. If you live in the U.S., you've probably grown up taking water for granted. You consider it basically free. I mean, if you tell someone from, like, Kenya 
that we take thousands of gallons of filtered, purified, chlorinated, fluoridated drinking water and water our lawns with it and flush our toilets with it. They'll say you're crazy. But during the Day Zero episode in South Africa, water became incredibly precious. It became a status symbol to have a dirty car because it shows that you're complying and you are not um, wasting water. Uh, we couldn't uh, water our gardens. Many people just lost their lawns. Radio and TV ads offered tips to save water. We only flush after every three peas in our house. I make sure to boil just one cup of water instead of filling the kettle to the max. I save water by not doing the dishes. If you lick the plates clean, then they look clean, then you can use them again. Water is a limited resource, so we should all be aiming high to save it. To take a shower, you'd stand in a plastic bin to catch your runoff. Later, you could lift up the bin, carry it over to the toilet, and use it for flushing. You didn't use soap and water to wash your hands. You used hand sanitizer. Women got shorter haircuts, so they'd need less water to rinse out the shampoo. If police caught you washing your car with municipal water, they'd hit you with a fine, and they'd confiscate your hose and your buckets so you couldn't do it again. Pop singers recorded free two-minute versions of their hits just long enough for the two-minute showers the government encouraged citizens to take. This YouTube video from The Guardian profiled more citizen tactics. Okay, so we had to take all the grass on. And this is a plastic grass, which has become very common in the neighborhood and everywhere. Plants that require water is just a no-no. If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, let it drown. Yeah, that. It's a mess. It's terrible. I hate it. <laughs> in the end, Day Zero didn't refer to one particular day. It referred to the whole period of desperate restrictions and panic. It lasted for about six months. And then, finally, finally, it rained. The restrictions had made the water last just long enough for the rains to start refilling the reservoirs. Here's Louise again. And one, uh, it started raining um, that winter, so we received 70% of the rain, so it brought that uh, relief. So it's a combination of uh, water savings, more wear of water, rainy seasons. The city of Cape Town celebrated with TV ads. It was tough, but together we refused to waste water. Now we're the number one water-saving city in the world. Come and see for yourself. It might just change the way you think about water. But Louise says that Cape Town's water emergency still isn't over. We cannot say that the crisis ended because since 2018, not one of the years, not one of the winters, Cape Town had its 100% rainfall. It's on average between 70 and 80% of our annual rainfall that we had since, since 2018. That's the first thing that we should know. The second thing is that the population in Cape Town increases and uh, the population is growing. The Cape Town drought was the worst in a hundred years, but everybody knows that it won't be the last. Even during the Day Zero episode, city leaders held urgent meetings to consider ways to avoid another crisis. 
they launched construction of two desalinization plants designed to convert seawater into drinking water. They began digging deeper to reach even more remote aquifers, underground water stores. And even before the crisis was over, they were meeting with the Nature Conservancy, the nonprofit environmental charity where Louise Stafford works. The Conservancy had a crazy idea that could win Cape Town more water every year, cheaply and perpetually, using a method that worked with nature instead of against it. All they needed was a helicopter, some ropes and saws, and some of the poorest women in Cape Town. After the break, I'll tell you about it, and I'll tell you whether it worked. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas, and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. And one more plug here. I'm the author of a book called How to Prepare for Climate Change. It's a 600-page paperback that's designed to be a field guide to the new climate. It tells you where to live, where to invest, what to grow, how to reinforce your home, how to insure, how to talk to your kids, and how to ride out wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, and so on. If you live in a state whose name contains a vowel, then you've been affected by climate change already, and you should check out this book to protect your health, your family, your home, and your finances. It's How to Prepare for Climate Change, the book that's exactly what it sounds like. 
As you now know, the 4.7 million people who live in Cape Town, South Africa, get their water from the mountains around the city. The water runs down and eventually flows into six giant reservoirs that by February 2018 were essentially empty. We were quite panicking. I don't want to lie to you. That's Tandeka Maifi Rafu, who lives in a small town near Cape Town. You would open your tap and then you would get um, water that smells muddy. Sometimes the color of the water, you would see that it's brown, meaning that it, it's coming straight from the bottom of the river or the dam. So it was really a difficult time for us, really. And that's Asipe Setiwayo. I'll tell you what Tandeka and Asipe are doing in this story in just a moment. Anyway, the first solutions that occurred to Cape Town's engineers were what environmentalists call gray infrastructure. Stuff you build, like desalinization plants, pipelines, deep drilled wells to aquifers. But Louise Stafford raised her hand to propose a different approach. Green infrastructure. Work with nature instead of against it. To understand the gist of the idea, we need to shift our focus from the city of Cape Town to the magnificent sandstone peaks surrounding it. These mountains draw a million tourists a year, but they're also host to a remarkable ecosystem called Feinbos. That's F-Y-N-B-O-S, loosely translated from Afrikaans as fine bush. It's a narrow belt of incredibly diverse plant life, spectacular weird flowers, shrubs, grasses that give the mountain a sweet herby smell. According to Louise, the Feinbos is really something special. It's got about nine and a half thousand different plant species. Over 70% of those plants are found nowhere else on Earth. As a handy bonus, the Feinbos isn't very thirsty. Because it was it evolved over time for this environment, it also lives with the environment. It doesn't take too much water and it's in balance. But something else grows on the mountain slopes around Cape Town something that shouldn't be there. Ominous music, please. Thank you. Those mountains have been pretty much taken over by an invasive species that might not strike you as especially evil. Pine trees. Back in the 1800s and early 1900s, European colonists brought pines and acacia trees to Cape Town and grew them in plantations. They couldn't very well build their homes and repair their ships with Feinbos shrubs, so they set about growing their own timber. But in the process, they triggered a classic story of unintended consequences, an invasive species running wild. It's human-induced. They arrive there without natural enemies. And that gives them a competitive advantage because they can grow uh, without any predators or insects that eat them or pathogens. So what happens is that the pine trees escape from the plantations and it started growing up high up in the mountainous areas. These pines have huge root systems. They're incredibly thirsty trees. A single tree can drink 400 gallons of water a day. 400 gallons. Remember, the people down below were trying to get by on 13 gallons a day. If it rains... The pine tree roots take that water up and it evaporates and it doesn't allow the water to get into the streams. So the trees are stealing the water up high in 
higher elevations, mountains, before it can reach the city? Yeah, the invasive tree steals the water from high up in the mountains and from lower lying areas where they would infiltrate aquifers and replenish the rivers. Louise and the Nature Conservancy put together a public-private partnership, a coalition of environmental groups, government departments, and corporate donors called the Greater Cape Town Water Fund. Its proposal to the city was simple but incredibly ambitious. Hit undo on the 150-year-old pine tree mistake. Cut them all down. Looking at the trees is a science that's been coming for a long time. We always knew that invasive trees steal water. But what is new is the urgency, the fact that the dams and the reservoirs ran dry. The urgency and the realization changed. What was the hardest part of getting this to happen? The hardest part was to convince a city that was facing a situation of taps running dry to think beyond the short term of getting of a rainy season and of pipes and reservoirs, but to think that nature can become part of the solution. So the the hardest part wasn't the engineering or getting people into rough, dangerous, mountainous areas to cut down trees. It was the people part, (laughs) the political part. You you make it sound like anybody would need to be convinced. (laughs) I mean... Who, who wouldn't want an inexpensive nature-based solution compared with building a desalinization plant? I think the, the, the reason why is because the figures aren't there. A municipal manager or a municipal water utility, their main function is to make sure that the taps are open. And it's mostly run by engineers. How do you convince engineers whose first instinct is to build stuff that the better, cheaper, longer-lasting solution is to cut down stuff? You meet them on their own turf, with surveys and research. In 2018, the Greater Cape Town Water Fund conducted a study. We said if we clear the invasive trees in certain areas, how quickly can we get the water back in the system and at what cost? And the business case, I believe, was a game-changer. The study revealed an astonishing statistic. Within five years of clearing the invasive trees, the city would gain over 13 billion gallons of water every single year. The city would gain two months' water supply every year if we clear 137,000 acres. Two months' water supply every year into perpetuity for as long as we maintain the areas. And by 2050, keeping the invasive trees cleared would gain the city of Cape Town four months of water every year. And I'm guessing that this is the part that caught the eye of the city engineers, the price. Cutting down 30 invasive trees has shown a return on investment of 351%. In other words, it's 351% more cost-effective to clear invasive trees from the watershed than it is to set up and manage and operate the desalination plant. As a handy bonus, clearing the trees is a more or less permanent fix. 
as long as you stop by every couple of years for a little cleanup, Louise says that... It will carry on forever. Uh, whereas if you look at, at uh, engineered infrastructure, they have a, dams have a, or reservoirs have a lifespan, pipes have a lifespan. So one always have to, you know, maintain or rebuild. Did nobody say, wait a minute, this is the first time in history that the Nature Conservancy is suggesting cutting down a lot of trees? We understand that it's important uh, to have trees to help with carbon sequestration and mitigate climate change. But if you have the wrong tree uh, or uh, the right tree in the wrong area, in other words, a tree that doesn't evolve in an area and become invasive, the cost of having that tree in a watershed outstrips out, uh, the benefit. Where we remove trees, we allow the native vegetation to restore and by doing that, you actually, you enhance the environment and the natural environment rather than looking at it just simply removing trees. Now, you might consider cutting down 250 square miles of pine forest on steep, dangerous mountain slopes in blazing heat and whipping winds to be a fairly ambitious project. But Louise and her team decided to make it just a little more ambitious yet. And to understand the significance of this part, we have to acknowledge a particular dubious distinction held by South Africa. On the list of the world's countries sorted by wealth inequality, South Africa is in first place, or dead last, depending on how you look at it. Until 1994, of course, South Africans lived under the legal and political system called apartheid. Official racial segregation and economic discrimination for the benefit of the white population. Strict laws literally dictated separate neighborhoods for each skin color. If you were black, you lived in what are called townships, very poor, ramshackle, crowded neighborhoods on the outskirts of town. Apartheid ended 27 years ago, but the townships are still there. Each neighborhood does have running water now, a single public spigot out by the road. They have toilets, too. One porta potty for each dozen families or so. Now you have the context for the choice of workers that Louise and her team chose for the tree-cutting project. We target women and young people under 25, and through creating these job opportunities, we improve livelihoods, uh, we help alleviate poverty, We give additional skills and dignity to people who don't have work. That's right. The plan was to hire women, poor women from the city, to do the work. So the added benefit of um, the work that we do is job creation and poverty alleviation. Wasn't that considered an, an added complication to an already complicated project because you're you're hiring people who have no experience in forestry? But people are highly trained. Uh, We make sure that safety is first. And we're really very excited about this opportunity that's being created for small businesses and for women. Here's where Tendeka and Asipe come in. They were among the workers hired to undertake the tree cutting on Cape Town's mountainous slopes. When I started with the program, I didn't have any other job. 
I was I was jobless, so I didn't have a choice. When uh, Nature Conservancy came along, uh, they advertised and they said they are looking for people that will be doing invasive species um, clearing in the catchment areas. This is new for me, especially at the Nature Conservancy, because in the town that I am from, the only kind of jobs that we we could do is uh, farming or work in farms. So alien invasive plant uh, removal was the new was a new uh, project for us. Tandeka was hired as a contractor, charged with building a team of other women to join her up on the mountain. I've got chainsaw operators, the people that are operating machines, ladies operating machines. This idea of hiring women is not something that might occur to a lot of people. Yes. (laughs) Are there some ways that you would rather have women on your team than men? We do need men uh, in in our teams, but um, I prefer more ladies than men. I'm not I'm not like uh, <laughs> a feminist, but they they are loyal. I don't want to lie to you. They are very loyal. Women are reliable. The people that can stand on anything are women. I promise you, and. If things are, are getting tougher, you will stand with women. Most of them, they are single parents that are, are the heads of the houses. So even if somebody is, it feels like I can give up, but who's going to assist him? And so early in 2018, the work began to clear 250 square miles of invasive pines from the mountains of Cape Town. Now, there are no roads up into those mountains, The only way up there is by helicopter. The pilot flies each team high up into the mountains where they'll live and work for two weeks at a time. They set up these low, wind-resistant pup tents with solar panels to power the radios and the lights. The workers use clippers to snip away the baby invasive trees chainsaws to cut down the ones they can walk to, and hand saws to cut the ones on steep slopes or sheer vertical walls. It was considered inadvisable for workers to mess around with chainsaws while hanging by ropes from the cliffside. The process begins with training, where Tandeka introduced prospective workers to the work they're signing up for. It's sort of an orientation you teach the person about the job from from the beginning and you do some awarenesses about like snakes, the steep areas that you are working going to work on. It sounded like you said snakes. I did mention snakes because uh, when you are working in, in the felt, there is snakes. That word there is velt, V-E-L-D. It's the Afrikaans word for field. In this case, the work areas up on the mountain. You must be aware that there will be snakes and you must also be able to identify the snake, what kind of a snake that you saw. Also, how poisonous is the snake? Even if maybe somebody has been bitten by the snake, you must know what kind of snake was it. And do you know what they teach them to do to a snake when they find one? Nothing. You can't beat the snake because the snake belongs in the felt. 
That's where it belongs. You can't um, take anything from the felt and you mustn't chase snakes as well. Wow. So you, you teach them they're not allowed to hurt the snake? No, they are not. They are not. We are, con- we, we are conserving the nature because it's their territory. It's, it's us that are coming to them in their own space. Okay, well now, the good stuff. Tell me about the work. Okay. All right. In the morning, the, the team leader or the crew leader will brief the people about the hazards on site and which area then they will present their plan of how are we going to tackle the site. Then after that, they will put on their harnesses. It's a belt. And then they put on all the equipment on. And then the health and safety of the group will check each and every person before they go that they've got everything with them because it's safety, safety, safety all the time. Because those areas are very mountainous. They are very high. It's high areas. And steep sometimes? It's very steep, very steep. Is it like a wall or is it more just like a... No, it's like a wall. It's like a wall. It's like 5,000 feet from the sea level. It's 5,000 feet up. So uh, just imagine, sometimes the ropes that they use, it's 200 meters going down. So are are you basically hanging from this rope? Yeah. Like you can move around, but a little bit from this side to this side. And also, yeah, a little bit sideways, but not too much. Just like, for instance, you, you, you have a portion that you can clear, like maybe two meters. That, that's your area. And <laughs> is your heart just racing or, or are you used to that now? When we started, the heights, some of them, they were afraid of heights. They are used to it now. Sometimes when they are working, you'll even hear them singing. Is it chainsaws? Is it is it handsaws? In some areas where it's uh, sort of, it's not that steep, they use chainsaws. Yeah. Otherwise, if the area is too steep, they do ring barking. Ring barking is removing a band of bark from all the way around a tree, like a belt. Once you've ring barked a tree, it can't drink water anymore. You've basically cut its water intake pipes, and so it dies where it stands. So, Asipe, when you're, when you're up there, can you give me a list of all the things you have to be careful of? Um, when you are in the mountain, first of all, you, you can get into a rock, and then you slip, and then you fall. It can be very hot that maybe one worker falls because of a dehydration. Also, you can be up there and then fire starts. And then there's no escape routes that um, you will have to wait for the uh, rangers to come and get you. And also, it, it sometimes happens that your chainsaw operator is busy cutting a tree. Then a worker is passing while the tree is falling so they don't see it. Also, I can say maybe um, when one person is busy cutting a tree and then they cut their fingers, like maybe just open a small cut and then they start bleeding. 
there are reptiles up there and there are other animals that are wild animals that can be scary. For example, there are um, baboons and stuff. Those are the things that happens up there. Okay, I'm never going to complain about my job again. (laughs) In 2020, the COVID pandemic slowed the Cape Town work, but only slightly. The teams cleared 90% of the area they'd targeted for the year. Now the work is getting back up to speed. But there have been other day zero crises in recent years. Cape Town's not alone. In 2008, the Spanish drought was bad enough that the city of Barcelona had to import water from France. In 2014 and 2015, Sao Paulo in Brazil, the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere, faced a similar crisis after a 13-month drought. The city had to shut off millions of residents' water for 12 hours a day. And Australia, of course, has been in more or less perpetual drought since the 2000s, which led to the devastating 2020 wildfires. Those fires killed over 3 billion animals and burned an area the size of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Hawaii combined. That's why, in the last 20 years, the Nature Conservancy has set up similar green infrastructure projects in 40 cities around the world, producing more water, cleaner water, at a fraction of the cost of building gray infrastructure— and conserving habitats in the process. By the way, I have no connection to the Nature Conservancy other than being a fan. I just love the way they work. They come up with these environmental projects that operate within the system instead of against it. They devise ways to make it more profitable for stakeholders to conserve land and sea than to continue destroying it. From a water perspective, the Cape Town Project has been a splashing success. And, and how much progress have you made so far? Can you, can you see it? Yes, because in some areas, when we started working there, uh, you could see the area is a wetland, but it's dry. But now, now that we've cleared, it's damp now. You, you could see that there is a difference. It is damp. The water now are running down to the rivers, to, to the dams, to the rivers, because also when there is invasive plants, they like to grow like together, like this. Then the area is dense. So now the penetration of water, it doesn't go like easily. But now, now that they are cut down, then the water will penetrate easily. And from a social and economic perspective, well, here's Tandeka to bring it all home. You, you spoke earlier about um, empowering women. Yes. Does it, does it work? Do you see growing confidence? Do you see women earning a living? Yes, I can see their confidence. Um, and also their leadership skills that I couldn't see before. Yeah, they've changed a lot. And also, like, they can afford other things that they couldn't afford before. How about your life, Asipe? Any changes? This program has changed uh, uh, me a lot and also women in my town. For them, it's like a new life has begun. I've listened to them one day. They were planning what they're going to do, how they're going to achieve most of the things that they wanted in life. So this program really, really changed um, a lot of people's lives. And the last question, how long will this go on? How long will you keep doing it? No, at the moment, there is no end point. 
I will do it as as long as I, I still can, like um, until I pension. <laughs> and I'm mentoring other people so that it doesn't end with me. Unsung Science with David Pogue is presented by Simon & Schuster and CBS News and produced by PRX Productions. The executive producers for Simon & Schuster are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and the project manager is Ian Fox. The amazing Jesse Nelson composed the Unsung Science theme music and fact checker Christina Ribello positioned herself nobly between my scripts and certain humiliation. For more Unsung Science episodes, visit unsungscience.com. And for more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter at Pogue, P-O-G-U-E. We'd love it if you'd like and subscribe to Unsung Science wherever you get your podcasts. And spread the word, would you? Thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.